0: Releasing software has inherent risk. If your users don't like your new feature, they might stop using your product immediately. If a software bug makes it into production, it can crash your entire application. Releasing software gradually has many benefits. A slow rollout to an increasing population of users allows you to test your software in multiple real-world environments, before it goes live to everyone. A system of A-B testing different versions of your software... Let's you see how different flavors of that software can perform against similar audiences. Edith Harbaugh is the CEO of LaunchDarkly, a system for feature management. LaunchDarkly allows developers to deploy new software releases in a controlled fashion. Edith joins the show to discuss how to implement feature flagging, why an intelligent release process can lead to a more scientific, predictable environment for software development, and many other topics. Edith is also the host of a podcast called To Be Continuous, and I recommend checking that out if you're interested in learning about continuous delivery and DevOps and many other technical subjects. Edith Harbaugh, you are the CEO and co-founder of LaunchDarkly. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: I want to talk to you today about building feature flagging, but I also want to talk about the business because LaunchDarkly is a pretty interesting case study of a successful developer tooling company. And it's not under a major cloud provider. It's not based on an open source project. So there's a lot of lessons to take away from the product itself. We should start by just grounding the conversation in a discussion of what feature flagging is. Can you explain what a feature flag is and how it fits into a developer's workflow?
1: Yeah, so feature flagging is this concept of basically separating out deployment, which is pushing out all the code to release. So with a feature flag, what you could do is you can ship a feature off and then turn it on for selective people. Like for example, a pattern I used when I was at TripIt was we would turn it on for internal users like myself as a product manager or UE designer, make sure everything worked to our satisfaction, basically doing a UAT, a user acceptance testing. And then we would turn it on for selective outside users to run a beta basically. But a beta where they were using actual data instead of having to look at a beta server. So this was really successful in that we could get real world feedback, but kind of control the blast zone as it was by having it only go out to certain people and having it be real world data. Then you can start to, if it's successful, start to do stuff like a percentage rollout and roll out to more and more and more of our population. So that's what a feature flag does. And it is incredibly powerful because the mind shift that happens of I don't have to push everything to everybody at the same time actually allows you to be a lot more deliberate and move faster at the same time because you know that you can get feedback from people and the, the other half of it is that if something is going wrong, like, for example, if the feature has a performance issue or it's just not what people really wanted, you can turn it off in seconds instead of having to do a full release to roll it back. So that's what feature flagging is, and it's, it's it's incredibly powerful.
0: So it's useful for things like releasing a complex feature in a way that allows you to test it with a super small segment of your product's audience. Uh, so if it's if it's a big change, then maybe you want to roll it out really slowly and you just, you know, you have this way of releasing it just to a super small subset of your audience and gradually ramping up that subset. Or you could use it for A-B testing between different audiences with a similar feature. All kinds of use cases for it. It sounds like a small problem to solve, but it's actually a bigger problem. It's actually a more complex problem why is that? Why is feature flagging as an engineering problem, as a business, why is it more complicated than it looks?
1: Well, I mean, the joke is that it's something that sounds really small until you start to think about it. So the joke is that we our, our nickname used to be Booleans as a Service, because people would say, hey, I've been feature flagging for years. It's just a, a flag. It's just a Boolean database on or off. When you start to think about it, though, it's a lot more complicated like the, the example I just gave of different populations getting features at different times. That's not just a Boolean. That's something that you want to have is really a first class object. That's something that you want to have visible to non-technical users also. And you want to have it separated from a release. And so then you get into having an UI to manage all these features. You get into access controls about who could touch a feature when. And then you get into audit logging of who turned it on and off. So my joke has always been that a feature flag is really easy. Feature flag like management is hard
0: right i was talking to somebody about this yesterday and we were just talking about what i was working on and i was like yeah i'm preparing for a show about a feature flagging company and they were like what feature how, are you, how do you have a company around feature flagging isn't that just config files and isn't that just a feature itself in like a continuous delivery platform or a cloud provider how is that an entire company and i was like well i guess i'm gonna find out
1: <laughs> so we actually love it if people have a config file or some homegrown solution, because that means that they've bought into that feature flags are good. And then they get to this breaking point where like, wow, we really depend on this for our releases. And it's this half big thing that's really brittle and is always breaking. Maybe we should go to a provider for this.
0: So this is often something that's associated with continuous delivery. And there's a multitude of continuous delivery tooling providers out there like CircleCI or GoCD, there's a bunch of others. Why didn't the CD tooling providers solve this problem?
1: It's interesting because CircleCI was actually, I think one of our first 20 customers, I actually do a podcast with their founder, Paul Bigger. And what Paul said was they thought about this, but it's actually a much larger problem when you start to get into it. So LaunchDarkly, we actually have client libraries for all the major languages, you know, for Ruby, Python, Go, Android, iOS, even C++. That's a lot of it. And then what we do is actually massive. I mean, so we serve, uh, depending on the day, between 30 to 50 billion, billion with a B, flags a day in real time. If you want to turn a flag on or off, we do that in microseconds. So that, that that's a big, 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 big task. So it's not just a mini project that you can whip out in a weekend. It's, 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 a, it's a whole company.
0: So developer tooling markets, the ones that I've talked to at least, you have things like continuous delivery and monitoring, and logging, and I think feature flagging falls into this category as well, they're oftentimes not winner-take-all. So you have a multitude of competitors that are slugging it out. in Like the logging space, there's just so many logging providers, and they're just slugging it out, and they're, it's like a war of attrition for pricing and go-to-market strategy and sales teams... And it's both good and bad because it's, it's good because it's it's pretty easy to build a business that has some customers, but it's bad because it's hard to win over customers who already have a logging provider because like, what are you doing that's 10x better than the previous logging provider I have? Why is that? Why aren't developer tooling companies winner take all?
1: I don't really feel qualified to answer that, to be honest. I don't know. So I, I guess I'll just say I don't know.
0: Interesting. Do investors ever kind of assess or approach that question like, you know, what do you do about, you know, the multitude of competitors or do you have to differentiate yourself sharply?
1: I guess I'll answer for us, for Lunch Darkly in particular, we were the first to do what we were doing. In the beginning, people thought my co-founder John and I were just kind of flat out crazy. But uh, my, my co-founder John had been out of Atlassian and but we were both really determined that we'd both been in software for decades, and we saw this problem very acutely. And we said, we just were convinced that if we built this, it would become a really valuable tool. So we had this faith and determination that we could create a category, which I think not everybody. Has. To, to, to your log example, it's it's easier to enter an existing category unless you're completely determined and crazy like us that we're like, we're just going to create this new thing. I think and then as we went along, we just started getting more and more momentum that our customers love us. I mean, I, I've been in software my whole life. When we go on site, people say that we have changed our lives, that they are happier and more productive and that their software and that their customers are better. And so that's created a ton of momentum for us. Like we're at this nice point now where we've been in business for almost 5 years where customers who used us at one job, you know as you know developers switch job. They go to a new job and they say the first thing that I need here is launch darkly. So I was I was just in New York and someone had left uh, a customer that had been using us for a while, moved somewhere and said I need launch darkly immediately. So what is really helping launch darkly right now is that we have become the de facto industry standard of not only is this the best way to do it, it's something that you really want, that you feel like you need. Like the the customer I talked to said they had, when he moved to a new job, he dumped an existing sprint because he said, until we get LaunchDarkly in, it doesn't matter what we built.
0: Well, my impression of looking at the dashboard and looking at how you position LaunchDarkly relative to other competitors I've seen is, it, it seems like it captures a very specific narrative and that narrative is that developers will implement this, but it will be crucial to product managers and managers of managers and releases and it's it's kind of built in a way where the the UI, which is what's replacing like the the LaunchDarkly UI, which is what's replacing the config files that people might be using uh, as an alternative is 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 accessible to people who are non-developers so it's really oriented towards not only developer-specific category?
1: Yeah, I mean, we're developer first. I mean, I, I've been a developer and I've been a product manager. And I can say if your developer does not want to do it, it's usually not going to get done. So we're very laser-focused on making the developer extremely successful and happy and comfortable. Um, comfortable that we're reliable, comfortable that we're scalable, comfortable that we can hand, handle their load. And then after that, once they get really comfortable with us, then there's this aha moment of, hey, you know, I can focus on developing and then I could give the control Over the release to the rest of the company you know and that's very liberating to the developer it's like hey if marketing wants to do a 6 a.m launch because that's 9 a.m in new york i can actually release this the night before and say hey marketing you wake up early and switch this on as opposed to alternative which i've been through which is the engineering team gets up at 5 a.m to do a release and hope that nothing breaks i've done that (laughs) you've been there right Yeah, (laughs) Did something break?
0: Something did not break, but I had to sit there for a while and make sure it didn't break. And then, you know, it's 5 a.m. and like, I'm not going to get back to sleep. And then, you know, my whole day is disrupted because I'm tired now and it's just not good. So it doesn't surprise me that if it leads to more harmonious teams, then you have people who go from one company to another and say, I need this. Uh, I need this here. And so you have, in terms of a go-to-market strategy, it gives you some something resembling kind of a network effect sort of thing. Um, but you know, I, I I saw you at this a Redpoint event, and the topic of the conversation was, I think it was when, it was how you compete in a market for cloud software when you're not a major cloud provider, and how you how you exist in this market where. A major cloud provider can constantly, you know, can at any time release some new offering to their bevy of pre-existing offerings and their gigantic customer base that already exists and can really compete with you because they have such a big channel of people that they can just upsell to on their current cloud products. So what have been your learnings from existing in that market? Do you feel like you have to act in a way that where you insulate yourself from competition from these cloud providers? Do the cloud providers even understand that fe- how big of a market feature flagging is?
1: It's funny because we, Microsoft has been one of our biggest and most helpful partners. So we have been a Microsoft partner for about three years now. We built an integration with Visual Studio and presented it two and a half years ago now at Microsoft Build, their big developer conference. And they've been huge fans and supporters of us. They blog about feature flags. They blog about us. Uh, their MVPs give demos. It's been a really successful partnership because Microsoft is very incented right now to show that they're not the old Microsoft. You know, the old Microsoft was the, you know, we will rule everything. And they think I eventually found out that they created a walled garden where nobody knew they existed anywhere. They'd isolate themselves. So they've they been extremely helpful to us. And it's been a very helpful relationship for, for us, too. And that's just And all in all, Microsoft has been wonderful, wonderful to
0: us. And... Do you feel like that if you, you know, so if, if another major cloud provider released a competing feature flagging service, I mean, I, I've actually seen the developer tooling companies that are not major cloud providers generally do really well in uh, when they're up against these major cloud providers, because I think that. The developers know that if they're going to go with a vendor in an ideal case the vendor would be existentially tied to providing that feature so if, so with LaunchDarkly, darkly you're saying like we are focused on feature flags and we're going to do it better than anybody else and it's existential to us whereas if aws comes out with you know aws feature flagging It's not existential, and it might take a little more work to convince the customer.
1: Yeah, AWS for a little bit had something a little bit similar, and then they actually pulled it. I think what's, again, what's really helping us is just I and our entire company
0: wakes up every day
1: caring a lot about future flagging and making our customers successful. That's what we do.
0: Yeah, and as you're building it, are you seeing other opportunities for product adjacencies? How do you see the product growing and expanding over time?
1: I think we'll continue to be, like I said, just fanatical about feature flags. There's a lot of interesting use cases that come up. Originally, we thought it was mainly going to be around launches, uh, hence our name, Launch Darkly. It was from this idea that we would help people with a, a dark launch. What we found over time is that feature flags are just so powerful. We have customers like IBM who use us to manage microservices. So they did a webinar with us a few months ago about how they actually use us to manage their own Kubernetes as a service, which is very meta if you think about it. We have other customers who use us to manage their own subscription plans. If you think of a subscription as just a grouping of features, they use us to manage that. We have other customers who use us for back for really pretty deep backend use cases features are not just for users like end users you can use them for gaining different functionality so we just i was just meeting with uh you know fubu.tv
0: i know the company fubu yeah like the clothes the apparel company
1: now, fubu.tv is a sports app. They do a lot of video streaming of sports events. They're, depending on the day, the number one sports app even ahead of ESPN. So they use us for a lot of really interesting backend use cases in terms of if one video feed has a quality issue for whatever reason, it's quickly switched to another one without having to do a re-release. And they do that via feature flags.
0: So they're doing load balancing via feature flags.
1: Quality balancing too if that's like if something is cutting out they could quickly switch they also use us uh there's devices all over the world and some devices just don't do well with new features android honeycomb is notorious so you can use feature flags to say hey this cool new feature just never show it to somebody at this device level
0: so the there's a preponderance of android devices and you know i can imagine. You obviously don't want to include a bunch of code in your actual application to have some really long switch statement where you you know check the user agent and then you have a switch statement that's like 80 lines long and you're switching on all the different types of Android. Uh, so it's much easier to just have some kind of uh, statement or import that allows you to defer this to the feature flag so what is the, the developer experience for, for using your product at least? Or what's the ideal developer experience for integrating with feature flagging?
1: It is delightfully simple. So it takes about 15 to 30 minutes to integrate us. You add our SDK. And then the tricky part is really figuring out what you want to pass us in terms of user attributes because you can get, at its most basic, all you need to do is pass us just a a unique identifier. If it's anonymous traffic, this can be as simple as a cookie or a GUID. You can get really sophisticated though. You can pass us IP addresses. For example, if you wanted to block some IPs, you could do that. You can pass us countries. For example, if you have rights to content in some countries, but not to others, you can do that. You could pass us attributes from business analytics. So for example, you could say this person has bought from us the past seven days, a thousand dollars worth of merchandise. They're going to get a different experience than somebody who has not bought in the past three years. So you can get really, really sophisticated with what you pass us. And that's what, that's the part where you take a little bit more time. And then after you have that available, you just if you're writing an individual flag, you just say, hey, Wrap the flag, uh, push it to launch darkly, and then at the launch darkly dashboard, you can say, "Hey, here's who has rights to
0: this." The examples of front end clients are pretty intuitive to me. Like if you wanted to do feature flag testing across different customer segments in different geos, for example, and try different pricing models across them, pricing is a very front endy kind of thing that you can just display to people different pricing pages but the the IBM example you gave where they have a kubernetes as a service product that's a very back endy kind of product what are they feature flagging? What, are, what kinds of things are they offering to different subsets of users?
1: Oh, well, let me let me walk you through a more simple example first. One thing that customers use us for is just database migrations. So a customer was moving from MongoDB to, that was the other way around. They're moving from one database provider to another. And that's a pretty risky operation when you think about it. You know, trans- moving databases is extremely error-prone and you want to make sure that everything carries over. So what they did is they used a feature flag to, for a while to actually send all data to both systems and then verify on the new one that it was getting read in and then do a kind of a slow cut over where they're making sure that everything was still going to both systems and then gradually ramping down and ramping up. And that was a case where they had two kind of two parallel systems running and a feature flag to manage that.
0: And so they did that manually. Did they were they just looking at like manually and the different how the feature flags were were manifesting, or did they have some kind of automated check where they tested a bunch of different test cases?
1: Both, because they wanted to make sure that that everything ran on both systems. So they had suites that they were running on both systems, and they used the feature flag to push traffic to both. The old way before you had feature flags, which I suffered through, was just to do a hard cutover with databases, which is actually pretty horrifying, because there's really no return.
0: Now if you're doing feature flagging at the UI layer, you can have pretty lightweight ways of of testing different copy on pricing, for example. That's very few variables, but you know as you, as you've illustrated, like something like a database migration or a Kubernetes as a service product is much deeper in the stack. It's much lower in the stack. So, how do you handle different Feature flagging cases. How do you split traffic in different ways when you have to handle these, you know, cases from very deep in the stack to much higher level?
1: Yeah, let me let me walk you through another example of uh, how customers use this. They were testing out a new back end system and they weren't sure how it could perform under load. This is something that without feature flags, you could try to do on a staging server. Whoa what I've found is that staging servers never really replicate the real world. So with LaunchDarkly what they did is they had their old service still running and they started pushing like 5% or 10% of traffic to the to the new one. And we allow you just to say I want 5% or 10% of traffic and how we under the hood do that is you're passing us a un- unique ID, we hash it so we can just do a percent rollout. What they found is that the new system worked fine until it got up to about 50% of load and then it just kind of fell over, which was fine because then they just put it back down to zero and and made some improvements in the new backend system and then retested until it could maintain the same load as the new system. I mean, it's the old one.
0: Yeah. So it's more, you function more as a router. You're not actually spinning up infrastructure for these companies.
1: No, 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 (laughs) no, I don't want, one of the initial ideas for, before launch directly was to do more, more uh, spinning up new services, but that world is just so complex. Like we, we assume that you have infrastructure.
0: So we have discussed the basics of feature flagging and how an engineer can implement it, how an engineer might use it. How does feature flagging affect the overall product strategy of a team and the direction of a team? Like how should PMs be using feature flagging?
1: Yeah. So what feature flagging really does is change how you approach the software to development lifecycle from being very waterfall to much more agile. Like A typical use case might be a feature is in an early alpha state. Now a developer could say, this is ready. Product manager, you pick who gets this. And that's really liberating for both sides because there used to be a real battle about as, as a former PM and as a former engineer is, well, it's a little bit shaky and then the PM asks for it anyway. It goes out to too many customers, and then they go back and basically yell at the engineer, why did you ship buggy code? With feature flagging, the PM could give it to a couple people. If the feedback is really dire, like, uh, hey, this just has some critical errors, they could just turn it off without even you know running a new release. And that alone is very liberating.
0: I want to talk more about the broader experience that you've had in running a company, Because there's a lot of people out there that are interested in starting developer tooling software companies. What have you learned about managing a startup, in particular, the process of managing a startup that is selling a product to developers?
1: (laughs) <laughs> it's very meta. How we change the the way we run the startup has definitely changed as we've gotten bigger. When we were a two-person company, it was John, my co-founder and I, and we just talked all the time. Even up to about eight people, we could still run it as a team. Like we had an all-team stand-up every day. Breakpoint as about when we got past 10 people, we said, okay, we can't do a daily stand-up every day for everybody. That's just not manageable. We started to have to put in place different management structures where we'd have managers and all hands, and then even we move to a quarterly OKR system. Whereas, in the, as I said, in the super early days, it was just like, hey, here's our weekly sprint. Everybody start, start sprinting.
0: Do you have a, a well-defined process for getting feedback from people who are using the product and maybe filtering that through customer success people and then getting the information to product managers and the product managers turning it into features for the engineers Have you defined that process or do you just kind of let it run and it works itself out?
1: it's definitely changed as we've gotten bigger. In the super early days, you know, John, my co-founder and I would actually have Slack channels with our early customers. And we would go on site and because John was the one building stuff, you know, we just both do everything. Now, as we've gotten bigger, we've had to put into place more process where we have a formal, you know, customer could customer request a feature. It goes into, we use Airtable. The PM can sort and filter and look at all the requests. And then we have a feedback loop where once a feature is ready, we notify customers. So it's definitely gotten more formal as we've gotten bigger.
0: So you use Airtable as the source of truth for these feature requests? Yeah, it's been
1: working well for us.
0: Hmm. Why, why is that useful? I hear a lot about that tool and I'm not really sure how to use it myself or what it's useful for. Like I know where a spreadsheet is useful. Airtable, I think they don't even really know how to market it other than to tell people to try to use it. And people seem to love it, but I, I don't know what it's for.
1: It's one of those things where I my theory is the person closest to the tool should pick, and our PMs like Airtable, and that's I was like that's great with me.
0: Okay, well maybe I need to just try it. So you have spent a lot of time in the technology industry before starting a company, and I was looking at your background, and I just I wonder you you seem like you are really poised to to run a company, and you enjoy being entrepreneurial. Why didn't you start a company earlier in your life?
1: <laughs> well, the joke is I wanted to start a company before, but I just didn't think I had any good ideas. I had been a software engineer. I had been a product manager I had been marketing, and I just didn't think I had any brilliant insights. The joke was on me because what I really knew a lot about was how to make software. So I had run projects. I had been a PM. I had marketed software. So we started a company, my co-founder and I, to help everybody make software because that was what we knew, like had been at Coverity and Atlassian. and He basically said the Venn diagram was he knew how to make developer tools. And so did I. So why, why not do that?
0: Yeah. Do you wish you would have done it sooner? Like do you did you get it was there some inflection point where you received some piece of advice from somebody that, you know, caused you to finally do it? Or was just a, a gradual process of internal, you know, recollection?
1: It was just a really tricky step. I mean, John and I were both mid-career. We were in our 30s. We were, I was a director. He was a, a manager. We saw this one path, which was just basically, hey, keep doing what we're doing. I think for both of us, there was this keen interest of, we both had this itch of, I wanted to start a company. And I finally kind of talked him and myself into it by saying, hey, if this doesn't work out, we can go back to kind of the old way. And I don't want to be you know, 55 or 65 or 75 and say, hey, what, what if I try that startup?
0: Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, as we begin to wrap up, I'd love to know about what the future is for the business. How do you see Launch Darkly evolving? in the next five to 10 years?
1: I think what I touched on earlier, which is our base is absolutely making developers' lives easier. Like I, I read all our net promoter surveys and a quote I saw, which I loved, was launch darkly is catastrophe's savior because we provide a kill switch where if something goes bad in release, you can just turn it off. So that, that's definitely our initial strategy. But beyond that, there are so many ways which we enable the entire enterprise. And the things I talked about, about product managers being able to manage features separate from release, And then even marketing, being able to manage features. For example, if they want to do an 8 a.m. launch in New Zealand, they have the power to do that without having to have a developer wake up to turn something on. And then even more into the enterprise with stuff like uh, if you have salespeople out in the field that they can turn features on and off for customers. Customer success can turn something off if a customer complains. And even finance, if somebody is non-paying, they can turn a feature off. Or if somebody signs a contract, they can turn it on. So there's all sorts of use cases about how software really helps the entire enterprise, not just the developer.
0: Right. So you see it, it sounds like, as turning into a dashboard where people throughout the organization can turn on and off different aspects of this piece of software, whatever they're they're using LaunchDarkly to build, and you don't have to have a ticketing system where the engineer has to, you know, manually create this sort of thing. You just put all the power in the hands of customer success people or PMs or whoever is not the engineer because the engineers have really scarce time.
1: Yeah, I think it's the liberation of code where developers can focus on developing and building and the rest of the org can be able to entitle and enable the software.
0: Actually, now this is reminding me, I should have asked you about this, but How has the internal infrastructure at LaunchDarkly, what you're running on, how has that evolved since you started the company?
1: Oh, a ton. I mean, we serve over 50 billion feature flags a day. We actually run LaunchDarkly on LaunchDarkly, uh, so we have a separate instance of LaunchDarkly to run ourselves. So the architecture has definitely evolved just to keep up with the immense volume that we do.
0: Which cloud provider do you use? We use AWS. Okay. Any particular services, like new, newer managed services that have stood out to you as being particularly useful? Or can you tell me more about the backend infrastructure management?
1: We wrote a post that really gets into it. It's pretty complicated. So I would point you at that one. It's on Stackshare.
0: Okay. All right, cool. Well, we will put that in the show notes. Edith Harbo, thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking. Yeah, thanks for having me.
1: Wow.